This is The Cable. How much retail ownership is in stock? Tech story is front and centre. What will this wind up doing to the cost curve? Your connection from the London market close to the US market action. A significant sell-off in European assets. It feels like a lot of these stocks have already priced that in. This is a stock that is increasingly being shorted. The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele. Behavioural challenges from the pandemic could linger for years on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. You're listening to Bloomberg DAB Digital Radio. I'm Alex Steele. Uh, Guy Johnson is over in London. Happy Monday, everybody. Um, Happy in the markets, too. I mean, we had a pretty solid day, whether you're in Europe or whether you're in the U.S. Um, One big story that has really helped banks on most sides of the aisle, in particular uh, the U.S. as well, is Jamie Dimon talking more bullishly about net interest income, as well as Christine Lagarde sort of doubling down on her blog uh, that she will indeed uh, look for two rate hikes and get out of negative rates uh, by September. Now, apparently, many others within the ECB also uh, feel that they should move even faster. So there's a little bit of discontent there. But either way, it really does feel like we're moving into a new era Uh, where negative rates uh, are one thing of the past. So that's sort of the headline that we're dealing with, the market reaction, fast and furious. We're seeing definitely a higher euro as well as higher equities. Let's get some more headlines here with Charlie Pellet. Thank you very much, Alex Steele. Here's what's going on. Bank of England Governor Andrew Bailey says the cost of living crisis is holding back the UK economy and that policymakers will take that into account in gauging how much to raise rates. Appearing at a conference panel today, Bailey also pushed back against recent political criticism of the BOE, saying that its response to the pandemic was not responsible for the painful rise in inflation that the UK is currently experiencing. Prime Minister Johnson says his government will look after people trying to cope with the surging cost of energy and basic goods, although he refrained from giving a timetable for action, with China's COVID-19 lockdowns and Russia's invasion of Ukraine driving up the price of everything from oil to bread and cars to consumer electronics, Johnson is under increasing pressure to help Britons manage a spike in costs. Speaking of which, asking prices for UK homes rose to a new record for the fourth straight month, though there are signs the market is starting to ease. Right move says price sellers are seeking when uh, the prices are that they are seeking when putting properties on the market rose 2.1% in May, the highest for the month since 2014. That marks a 55,000 500-pound jump since the housing market was halted at the start of the pandemic, almost 10 times the 6,200-pound increase in the two previous years. That is the latest from the news desk. Alex Steele, back to you now here in New York. Charlie Pellet, thank you very much. And apparently, for those of you who didn't know, it's also Davos. Indeed, indeed. And, uh, you know, know, I was just trying to debate... uh, being at Davos, I saw the funniest sign. I got to tell you, Alex, the funniest sign hanging over the street there uh, in Davos, one of the big streets, and it says, A warm welcome to Davos. The joke being, obviously, that this is an event that is typically held in cold winter months with snowy yeah. backgrounds, and uh, absolutely not the case right now in Davos. No, it's to weird say, to see the trees. It's yeah, very weird. In, the Swiss Alps in the summer are warm, beautiful, and stunning. I think they're even prettier than they are in the winter. They are amazing. Mm. They're definitely beautiful. It's just really weird to not see, you know, all the TV talent and all the people there in like huge hoodies and the snow. Like it's just the optics are are just different. Exactly. And also, too, I know that on the TV sets there, they bring in heaters to keep the talent warm on the air, which makes perfect sense given the uh, the freezing backdrop. 
I'm glad we worked this out. It feels important. Um, so, Guy, I was talking earlier about uh, how you saw pretty much an equity rally in the U.S. as well as over in Europe. And the lead story is really about Christine Lagarde and her blog kind of doubling down on rates, saying we're getting at a negative by September. Absolutely. And this is this is why banks have rallied here in Europe today. It's why you've got the euro tracking back up uh, towards around 106. Uh, we are I, it, it is a completely different ballgame for Europe. And here's the interesting part about it is that Lagarde probably had to produce that blog because she is being pushed so hard by the Hawks. Mm -hmm. Fantastic Bloomberg reporting. And we'll talk about this in just a moment, kind of addressing the issue uh, about the fact that that you've got a whole bunch of Hawks probably led by the guys, uh, by, by people like Klaus Knott, pushing her maybe even to do more. She's just trying to get out and manage the message because she's being pushed so hard. Some great reporting by Anna Randa and the team basically saying that there are plenty on the governing council that are suggesting that she needs to do more. And I think that's kind of where the debate is now going to be. Are we in a position where actually we may need to find ourselves at the stage where maybe the ECB actually needs to do 50 basis point mm -hmm. hikes. That has not been talked about thus far. The, the whole issue of the dollar, obviously, and, and kind of what it's doing to the global economy is a huge factor right now. It was one that we addressed a little bit earlier on with Kristina Gorgieva. Uh, she is the uh, managing director of the IMF. Now, the U.S., has signed some economic trade pacts with 13 nations. The president is out in Asia right now. Now, the question is, is that a positive sign for globalization? Maybe it isn't dead. But if you continue to see what's happening with the dollar right now, it's going to make basically the whole globalization story much more difficult to manage. Let's take a listen to what she had to say. Yes, it is a positive sign that we recognize international cooperation is good for everyone. And if we want to retain increasing standards of living, uh, we have to work together for it. What does it mean for the next 12 to 18 months? If you look at inflation, that could lead to famine. It's going to be extremely hard for uh, especially the poorer countries. And then you have the chance of a worldwide recession. How high is that? We are projecting a lower growth than we anticipated last year, 3.6% versus 4.9%. But let's remember, 3.6% is the average growth in the previous decade. In other words, we are still projecting to be in positive territory. However, since we put out our projection in which we downgraded 143 countries, what are the incremental changes? One tightening of financial conditions, two, appreciation of the dollar, three, slowdown in China. All of this is making further downgrades not out of a question. And uh, for some countries, there is now an increased risk of recession but we do not anticipate a global recession. I mean, you're absolutely right, especially this dollar rally, of course, has huge implications for some of the countries across the world. Are you expecting the IMF to have to step into countries a lot more because of all of these imbalances that we could live through in the next 18 months? Well, look, we are living uh, in a time of a crisis upon a, a, a crisis. Who is most at risk? The countries that were weaker to begin uh, with. And so we are already seeing uh, an increase of uh, demands for, for IMF engagement in uh, Lebanon, in Egypt, in Tunisia, in Sri Lanka. And we are looking into the uh, uh, 2022 as a difficult year for especially developing countries under a high level of debt. Yeah. When your cost of servicing your debt 
jump up and you are in a very tight fiscal position, uh, of course, this is the time when the IMF has to step up and we will do. Remember, we have $700 million yeah. still available to buffer the world economy. How worried are you about Sri Lanka? Are your hands tied until there's some kind of you know, deal on, on restructuring debt? We are working at the technical level relentlessly. I feel for the people of Sri Lanka, this is a tremendous shock for them. We would like to see progress made and we are already engaging with Sri Lanka's creditors to appeal for fast action on debt restructuring. Of course, to help a country, the country needs to help itself first. So how the po politics would uh, shape up uh, would be quite critical. That was, of course, the IMF's managing director talking to the team a little bit earlier on in Davos. Let's talk now about what's going to happen over the next 24 hours. Christine Lagarde is going to show up in Davos um, and she's going to be interviewed tomorrow by Francine Lacroix. Today has been a huge day for the ECB. Uh, first up, we had this blog coming from Christine Lagarde talking about the idea that we will see uh, a move potentially to deliver 75 basis points of hikes this year uh, will certainly be by the end of the third quarter, i.e. September, back to neutral effectively on the depot rate. But then we get this great reporting suggesting that actually Christine Lagarde is having to fight a rear guard action right now against the Hawks who want much, much more from her. Uh, David Powell joins us now from Bloomberg Economics to give us his take on all of this. David, how much pressure is Lagarde under right now? Uh, and do you think there is a danger that she will be forced to go faster? I think um, what's happened over, over the course of the last several months is that Christine Lagarde has been unable to control the narrative in the market about when the ECB will tighten. You may recall that not so long ago she was saying the ECB would not raise interest rates this year. And the market priced in a hike and then another hike. And uh, she's had to change her uh, story based on, on market action. And last week, we had uh, one member of the governing council from so the Dutch Central Bank, uh, who's probably the, one of the most hawkish members, all of a sudden, for the first time, raised the idea of a 50 basis point hike. And I think this was an attempt to take control of the narrative and to say, no, we're not going to have a hike of 50 basis points in July, and to prevent the market from pricing that in further, which it began mm -hmm. to do uh, last week after those hawkish comments. So um, did it did it work? Because I feel like, you know, like a couple hours after the blog post and we're all talking about it, Bloomberg has a scoop that says the Hawks are actually kind of annoyed and they want to go faster. Yeah, she's not, of course, going to be able to uh, to completely change the minds of the Hawks of the blog post. What it is, it's an attempt to take, take control of that narrative, so it will steal the show from them, so to speak. Um, and um, did it work? Um, all we have to do really is look at market pricing. Unfortunately, the Bloomberg Terminal is a nice little uh, function for that, and we can see that market pricing didn't shift very much today. So, uh, so this has not had a big impact on how the financial markets see the trajectory right. of monetary policy in the euro area. So what would change it? Are we going to hear more from the Hawks now? Do you think we are going to see a very fragmented governing council. We're already starting to see evidence of that. You've got Knott and the others basically coming out and indicating that they would be comfortable with the possibility of a discussion around 50 basis points. Can Lagarde contain that? Draghi was good at basically setting where he thought the governing council would be. It feels like Lagarde is following rather than leading. 
Uh, that, that does seem to be the, the, the case. It is the feeling we get. She is following rather than leading. Um, can she contain it? Um, well, I guess we'll, we'll, we'll have to see. But um, if we look at what happened, what's happened over the last several months, the hawks are the one driving the narrative. They come out and they have a comment and the market begins to pipe that in. Um, and we saw that we saw that last week. And, uh, and if they continue to talk about a 50 basis point hike in July, the market could move there um, eventually. Of course, it will depend on what the data does, too. The data has gone in the way of the hawks. He continues to be surprised to the upside on inflation. OK, so either way, if we get to just zero to 25 basis point hikes or we get a 50 or, or whichever, either one is an enormous change from where we are right now. And I'm wondering what the effect of that is. So if we if we hike fast here in the U.S., we talk about how we're going to see demand destruction and potential recession, and that's what the Fed wants. Then on the other side, you say, well, but maybe in Europe that could be great for banks. It actually could be good for growth. Where are we in that debate? Well, it, it depends who you're talking about. From a central bank's point of view, uh, their ultimate goal, their mandate is to lower inflation um, or to, to bring it at a, not lowered, but to keep it at target of 2% of the medium term, which would be lowering it from where it is right now. So they're obviously going to see, or certain members of the, of the governing council are going to see um, additional tightening as a good thing that will help them achieve their goal. Um, of course, higher interest rates have a different implication um, for banks, though, which are concerned about earnings, um, and higher interest rates help that. What impact would a stronger euro have in terms of the inflation trajectory in Europe? Um, we obviously import here a lot of energy that is largely priced in dollars. We've gone from having a conversation, it seems, over the last couple of days about parity euro dollar to potentially 110. That is an enormous difference in terms of in terms of the rate of the euro. What impact would that have on inflation? Well, of course, the level of the exchange rate um, plays a role in inflation, but it's not been the driving force or anything close to it when we look at the drivers of inflation. It's really the very high um, commodity prices, um, and, it, and, it, and more so now food prices, um, which have been impacted by um, by the war in Ukraine. So I guess every little bit helps, and you want the exchange rate if you're worried about higher level inflation to be, to be helping you out there, um, mm-hmm. but um, it's not going to be a game changer. All right, uh, David, thanks a lot. We appreciate it. Uh, David Powell joining us there, a senior Euro area economist. Um, Guy, but, you know, to your point, I think it was literally last Monday. Like, one of the yeah. top-read articles was, do we mean a 1980s plaza-style accord because the dollar was just so strong? And if this hawkish rhetoric in any way alleviates that pressure, that can be quite meaningful. Yeah, I, a move from, from kind of 105, 104, 103 to what we were a few days back, back up to 110 would be absolutely massive in yeah. this context. The Bloomberg dollar index, I, it's not, it's not like the, the, um, the, the DXY. It does have a, a broader swathe of swath of, uh, of currencies in it. But nevertheless, moving the euro in that kind of, in that kind of direction would have a massive difference. Yeah. And that would have a huge positive effect on the global economy. A weaker dollar uh, would certainly have a really big impact into the emerging markets. Okay, up next, we're going to take you into chip land. We're going to hear from Pat Gelsinger, the CEO of Intel. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. Welcome back. You're listening to The Cable. We're live on DAB Digital Radio. Best performing sector here in Europe today, the banking sector. A couple of reasons for this. One, Jamie Dimon over at JP Morgan talking about net interest income being significantly above expectations. So that's a story coming out of the States. 
Then you also get this story that we were discussing in the last block about the possibility uh, of interest rates becoming positive in the eurozone. That would be a huge boost to European banks. It has been a very, very bumpy ride. One of the banks that has been hit hardest by that bumpy ride has been Credit Suisse. So where are we going next? What should we expect in terms of the economic backdrop that we're going to be facing? Francine Lacroix caught up with Credit Suisse's CEO, Thomas Gostin. Well, as you said, uh, with the high inflation shocks that we see now in certain areas of this world, it's very clear that people are somewhat insecure. They are in risk-off mode. Uh, but uh, our house view still is that there won't be a recession, neither this year nor next yeah. year. There will be a slowdown. I think our house view global GDP is 3.3% for this year and 29 for yeah. next year. They have come down. Yeah. Uh, and if you look at certain markets, whether it's um, equity markets or high yield markets, they have clearly come under pressure. Uh, I mean, under pressure, they've been a bit crazy. Yeah, well, they have basically been uh, pretty, pretty quiet. Let's put it this way. But um, our our clients, they don't panic. You know, they they are looking at uh, at how things develop. Uh, and they stay engaged, and that's very yeah. important for our wealth management clients and our wealth management relationship manager yeah. that they stay in front of the clients, and so, that's what I'm really focused on. So, so, so there, there's no, you're not seeing any outflows. They're still fully invested. Well, what we did see, like many of our competitors, is some deleveraging mm -hmm. as part of you know assets on the management going down, uh, certain equity uh, prices going down. But so some deleveraging, especially in Asia. Mm -hmm. Uh, and obviously, with what happened in, in Russia and in some, some other parts uh, that AUM have gone down, but um, no, no outflows as such. No. Does it actually hurt your ability to like, collect some of the fees in certain parts of the markets with some of your wealthy clients or not so much? Well, if you look at our three uh, revenue streams, so net interest has come under pressure because we had lower lending volumes. Oh. But now with interest rates going up, that should be a positive um, element going forward. Uh, recurring revenues have also come down because of lower AUMs. And transactional revenues actually uh, have started to stabilize now. Uh, volatility sometimes yeah. is a good thing for transactional revenues, so uh, have, have started to pick up. Uh, but um, it's clear that 2022 uh, will be... Uh, will be at lower levels than last year. Um, Thomas, S&P and Moody's both downgraded actually the credit ratings on the bank. Does that hurt your ability to do business? No, not at all. I mean, if you look uh, at the rating actions, as you said, we had two downgrades and one uh, affirmation. Uh, we are now at rating levels very comparable to uh, some of our European peers. Uh, we have very solid capital ratios, 30.8% CT1 ratios in the upper half mm -hmm. of our peers. Our 6.1% tier one leverage ratio is actually at the upper end of yep. all our peers. And the main reason why the two rating agencies downgraded us was because we always said 2022 is a transition year, yep. lower profitability. That was obviously accelerated uh, through the slowdown that we've we've seen now uh, on the back of uh, the uh, Russia if you, invasion. If you had to raise capital, would it hurt the ability to do that? It's not a topic. It's not a topic. It's not something yeah. that you can do. I mean, it, Credit Suisse has had a very tough time. Yeah. Uh, look, uh, as, as we said in November, 2022 is a transition year. We are executing our strategy and that's what we focused yeah. on. How are you doing personally? I feel like also and every couple of days there's a story or not that you're either going to be replaced or could resign. 
It's tough. No, look, uh, it's very clear that uh, when results are not there, people are asking questions. But I have a clear mandate. And my mandate and the rest of the executive board is number one, execute the strategy. Number two, strength and risk management. And number three, be here for our clients. We are back to business as usual, and we are here uh, to serve our clients. And that's what we're focused on. That's my mandate. Yeah. And I'm working extremely well with the rest of the XP, with the chairman, with the board. So it's, you know, that's what I'm focused on. That was Credit Suisse CEO Thomas Gottstein uh, talking to Francine earlier. Um, what was also interesting, which we didn't hear in that interview, Guy, is talking about return to office. And Credit Suisse says that, you know, they're never going to go back to office full-time. And it's unrealistic. It's not what employees want. And then if you push people too hard to come back, <laughs> banks on Wall Street, uh, it is counterproductive if you push too hard. It's interesting, isn't it, the compare and contrast. Mm-hmm. European banks are being much more flexible in their approach. I have to say, like, London is a tough town to commute in and out of. And a lot of people have made the decision they're only going to do it two or three days a week, which is going to have profound effects going forward. And yet, I look at what is happening in New York as well. I, the commute in New York looks like it's getting tougher and tougher and, and dangerous. tougher. And I was about to yeah. add, and we've seen a fatal shooting of a Goldman Sachs employee, which is going to keep a lot of people off mm-hmm. the underground, the subway. Um, and, and it's going to be interesting to see what effect that has. Like US banks, Wall Street banks saying, you've got to come back, you don't have any choice. But people are looking at their options and thinking, that doesn't look too good to me right now. No, and then, you know, if that actually gives them a little bit more power to do that or what the effects are or do you have to pay people yeah. differently? I mean, do you have then less of wage increases and the higher end if you do have a hybrid, but if it's all hands back on deck and you have to come into the office, do you wind up having to then pay them more? And then does that change the wage scale? I mean, I feel like the longer term effect of that will be quite interesting also. Yeah. And do people still feel that in order to get ahead, they need to be in the office? Yeah. Because that's, I think that's, well, that's like what Ken Griffin was talking about. That's what I feel like what he was alluding to last week in, in a conference that we took. Like, he's like, everyone wants to be here. <laughs> yeah, of course they do. Honestly. Yeah, they no, definitely we're not be making here. them. They just want to, yeah, they're competing. That's exactly what's happening. Yeah. So that whole kind of presenteeism argument is going to be interesting to see if one firm cracks and says, you know, we don't have to do this. And it's going to be, it's not going to be the big Wall Street banks that do it first. It's mm-hmm. going to be yeah, yeah, yeah. the private equity businesses. It's going to be the private side of the ledger because they're saying you can live wherever you want. You can move down to Florida. We're going to be flexible because mm-hmm. they are, they're going to, they're not only going to pay better, but they're also going to, they're also going to give better options in terms of work, work life. What I do know is that Guy and I will be in the office. That will so this this job is to tougher to do from home. It is. We prefer to be here, and that's actually legit. Because if we didn't, we're not happy when we work from home. Um, all right. Well, coming up next, a uh, huge deal uh, within the tech space. Uh, we have Broadcom buying VMware potentially. We're going to break that down. Coming up, this is Bloomberg. This is the Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. You're listening to The Cable. I'm Alex Steele here in New York. Guy Johnson's over in London. Uh, Good evening. It's 5.30. It's 12.30 right here in the U.S. Uh, In the U.S., what I can tell you is we're having an insanely strong rally in markets, but in particular, the banks. Bank stocks are gaining on J.P. Morgan's 
biggest rally since November of 2020. We will get to the details of that in just a second, but it's worth highlighting the big move that we're seeing within the markets, especially when it comes to things like raw stores, which is the best performing stock within the S&P. Remember that? It was really killed last week uh, on some pretty grim retail earnings, and that's up as well. So also, like if you're oversold, you are also getting a nice bounce within the U.S. equity market. So we'll get to that story in just a moment. Let's get to Charlie Pellet for some other headlines. Hi, thank you very much, Alex Steele. Here's what's going on. A court in Kiev has sentenced a Russian soldier to life in prison for murdering a Ukrainian civilian, ending the first war crimes trial stemming from Vladimir Putin's invasion. And Russian president, uh, or Ukrainian president uh, Vladimir Zelensky says as many as 100 Ukrainian fighters may be dying each day in severe fighting in the Donbass region, currently the main focus of the Kremlin's assault. Speaking in Davos, Zelensky did say Russia's economy should be shut off from the world as he invited global investors to shift resources to his country to help re- rebuild Ukraine. Starbucks, meanwhile, is exiting Russia completely, marking the latest corporate withdrawal from the country after its invasion of Ukraine. In March, Starbucks said its licensed partner had agreed to immediately suspend operations at all 130 of its stores in Russia. Customers of a failed UK funeral services provider SafeHands plans will get no more than a fifth of their money back. The firm's administrator says about 46,000 holders of prepaid plans sold by SafeHands, which fell into administration in March, should expect to get between 10 and 20 percent of their capital returns. And finally, a group of 250 luxury UK brands, including Burberry and Harrods, have called on the government to reintroduce tax-free shopping for tourists as a way to boost the economy before the pandemic, tourism contributed 4% of Britain's economy and had an overall value of about £85 billion. That is the latest from the news desk, Alex Steele. Back to you now here in New York. Okay. I like tax-free. I like tax-free shopping. I I like shopping too, exactly. (laughs) Duty-free. Used to be a really when I was a kid, that was a massive thing. Oh yeah, it is a massive thing. Yep, taxes are really expensive. Yeah, it is. But but then kind of there was this whole idea that you still had duty free, but it wasn't because they basically they they discounted at the airport, but it wasn't duty free. Mm. We could be now going back to duty free here in the UK because of the fact that we've left the EU. And I think anybody and everybody who traveled in the 70s and 80s on airplanes transatlantic remembers that guy. But I also remember the flight attendants going up and down the aisle going, Mm -hmm, mm duty-free, duty-free, duty-free. And, of course, my mom, who has since passed, would always tell me to load up on cigarettes as (laughs) uh, uh, on the flight to the United Kingdom. Your mother would tell you to load up on cigarettes. Uh, Oh, absolutely, 100%, yes. Uh, uh, You know, whatever the the legal age was, but it was like, you know. 10-year-old Charlie being told to. Like, but, load up. Exa- and buy the maximum, you know, and bring, you know, whatever the legal max was to bring into the UK. And, uh, you know, obviously I was not the only one doing no, that. No, I'm, I'm going to load up on uh, Joe Malone and Ted Baker. That's uh, what I'm going to do. Exactly. And that, by the way, is back when you could actually smoke on airplanes. I mean, you couldn't consume the cigarettes you bought on board, but you mm-hmm. could certainly smoke on airplanes. It oh. was terrible. Ashtrays on airplanes. Yep. Yeah, that's, that's gross. It's really gross. Now you just have to wear a mask. Not anymore. Not anymore, really. Now you can, yeah. I guess you can drink, you can eat, you can do everything you want. Um, okay, let's get back to this bank no, story. Because there's com- a few things going on with J.P. Morgan. So they had this investor day. Jamie Dimon comes out and he raises their net interest income guidance. But he also was relatively bullish about the U.S. economy. Credits yeah. looking really good, too, he says. So I thought it was really interesting. He talked about credit being okay. He mm-hmm. talked about clouds 
rather than the rest of the U.S. economy being kind of rock solid. These were clouds. They could dissipate. Storm. Storm clouds. But... Storm clouds. Yeah, but, but nevertheless, storm clouds can dissipate. They can go away. Um, and he sounded really, it, it was, I was surprised how positive he sounded. I also listened to Brian Moynihan today as well uh, over at Bank of America. And I have to say, listening to him, he was talking about customer deposit bases being still really strong, that the money from, from stimulus checks was still there. In mm-hmm. fact, actually, probably people had more money in their checking accounts. Um, and as a result of which, this kind of this chat about the US consumer being in great trouble, I felt, I, I feel a bit better about it today. But it does mean, in theory, that if the U.S. consumer keeps going, drives the demand side, the Fed's going to have to go even stronger. Yes. Yes. And and they're not alone. Also, uh, Jane Fraser also spoke, CEO of Citigroup. She spoke in Davos and very much along the same lines, too, that the U.S. consumer savering rate is going to, you know, be a buffer. Uh, there is a path forward from all the chaos and the commodities that, you know, commodity supply is starting to outweigh demand. Those are all, I mean commodity part is not a consumer thing. But it is, in fact, if we get the supply up, that means that the demand can be met. It means that we won't have that supply yeah. shock issue as much. But you need but you need to get the supply up, and that is where the problem lies. I, the Fed has got a blunt instrument, which is killing off demand. Yeah. It, you, raising interest rates does not improve the availability of chips. It doesn't mm-hmm. improve the availability of gas or oil or diesel or whatever else it is that we're having problems with at the moment, food. And that's this is this is uh, Professor Stiglitz's argument mm-hmm. is that actually we're using we're using the wrong tools to try and solve the problem. Right. What we're trying to do is kill off demand, but actually what we should be doing is doing supply side reform. But we're not going to get that. And well, it it doesn't it doesn't. Some areas you can make quite a big difference. It was interesting to hear the president overnight talking about the idea that he's going to potentially talk about with Janet Yellen reducing some of the Chinese tariffs. Now that's not going to have an imp- sort of immediate impact. And it may be fairly muted, but that's the kind of thing that could improve the supply side story for the United States. So I have a couple things with that. And one is that let's pretend that all the tariffs were listed, lifted like right now. I question China's ability to get stuff out that's because true. of their lockdown policy, yep. because of their own issues. Number one. Number two, if I'm a company and I had a lot of exposure to China and this tariff stuff went down and then the COVID stuff went down, I would seriously want to reshore stuff or at least diversify. And that's what Apple, for example, is doing. Um, I think those are my only two points. It's doing it, but it's going to take a while to do it. Yes. So anything that eases... Tariffs generally are are grit in the the gears of of globalization, right? Yeah. Yeah. so you reduce tariffs, then in theory, the global system works a little bit better and there mm-hmm. is the option to maybe getting stuff to consumers. And and if you can just do anything, even at the margin, if it has a 1% impact, do you could do a few things like that. You are actually potentially going to add up and make something actually worthwhile doing here. Um, and that's that's where I think it's it's going to be interesting to go forward from mm-hmm. here. If you could just, like, small changes here and there on the supply side might actually make a bigger difference than big changes like raising interest rates by 50 basis points. Right. I also, though, wonder, too, if I'm trying to remember from Target and Walmart's earnings last week where the biggest cost pressure was. Was it transportation? Was it wages? Was it just everything? Because, for example, if you're looking at wages, nothing you do from China is going to help that. Um, no. Like diesel is going to make quite a big difference. Wages, well, it depends how you think about it, isn't it? Wages are going up because of the tight labor markets, mm-hmm. um, which is kind of the, probably the biggest factor. So yeah, I think that that is that is something that would be hard to move. But if you reduce the if you reduce the the, 
the the cost that could that workers are paying, i.e., at the grocery store themselves, True. maybe they yes, don't need such big big wage rises. So so I think there's a little bit of of both in there. But but yeah, there's a whole bunch of factors that are in the mix. Um, consumers clearly have changed their behaviour quite a lot. They are reacting to higher prices, mm-hmm. and they are reacting to those higher prices by changing behaviour. And that's kind of what caught the caught the big retailers out last week. Yeah, and also psychology, right? Like we yep. say that the pressure is going to be eased, you might think it, hence inflation expectations, etc. Um, all right, coming up, we're going to talk about the big tech deal. We're going to hear from Intel CEO. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. Welcome back. You're listening to The Cable. We're live on DAB Digital Radio. I kind of want to pick up kind of where we left off, this whole issue about how do you manage inflation what are the bigger effects? Do you try and reduce inflation, knock the demand side, or do you try and ease the supply side? One of the biggest areas in which we've seen supply side problems, of course, been in the chip sector. Uh, Pat Gelsinger runs Intel. We had a conversation with him a little bit earlier on to get his take on what is happening with that supply chain story and where we go from here. We definitely think that the supply-demand balance is... 2024. And, uh, you know, a year ago, I said 2023. Since then, we've seen a number of equipment supply chains move out. So our equipment coming into the fabs that we're building, that has moved out. So overall, 2024, until we start to see a reasonable balancing of semiconductor uh, supply chain. So will it get worse from here before it gets better? Because when you take a look at the ports in China, for instance, we're talking about Mm. 50, 60 ships just waiting to unload. And of course, uh, that's causing a lot of headaches. Oh, yeah, the supply chain issues that we've seen in uh, China, but it comes on the back of many other supply chain issues. So we're already sort of beaten down, and so we have to work through it. And maybe the you know softening of the economy, a little bit of consumer softness, gives us just a little bit of breath. But you know we're still out to 2024, and obviously the uh, Shanghai ports have you know created a bit more turbulence that we're managing through near term. We talk about a slowdown, in fact, uh, a global slowdown, although we've seen a pushback from Kristalina Georgieva saying we're not looking at a, a global recession, but definitely a slowdown. Would that mean demand destruction? What assumptions are you making? Well, we definitely see a bit of softening on the consumer side. Right? How much Low. softening? I mean, c- can you give a number to that? Um, you know, as you saw in our earnings, you know, we saw, you know, there was a meaningful, you know, several, you know, a number of percentage points softer there. We originally were expecting the PC industry to be up a couple of points this year. Now it's sort of flattish, maybe down one point. So, you know, a meaningful swing. But on the business side, the enterprise and commercial side, no change. Right, continuing to have real strength in those uh, uh, areas of the market. You know, I think with you know inflation concerns, tightening a monetary policy, these continuing supply chain challenges. Yeah, things are probably going to be a little bit choppy for a couple of quarters. You're also relooking, reviewing where you produce your chips. In fact, you're making Europe as well as the U.S. a priority. And perhaps that message is resonating even more given what we're seeing in China. Um, How is that coming along? Well, we are all in on the rebuilding and what we've called the geographically balanced resilient supply chain, where, you know, this industry was 80% in U.S. and Europe 30 years ago. Now it's 80% manufactured in Asia. What happened? You know, and it was never as I, uh, you know, I was in Washington last week, and, mm-hmm. you know, I, I, I joked to some of the congressional leaders, we never voted to get rid of this industry, but those countries voted 
to get this industry. You know, and they put strong packages in place to attract this industry there. And now we see that, oh, you know, we are way too dependent on too few places in the world. You know, and Haslinda, what aspect of your life is not becoming more digital? Everything's becoming digital, right? You know, my consumer, my healthcare, my tra you know, transportation, you know, how I work, how I live, and everything digital runs on semiconductors. As I say, you know, where the oil reserves are define geopolitics for the last five decades. Where the fabs are is more important for the next several decades. Let's build them where we want them and do it in a way that we have more resilience to the supply chain. It is all great that you want to make the US and Europe a priority, but it's also about scaling and scaling quickly. How soon can you get there? Well, you know, we've announced the Ohio site, expansions in Arizona and Europe. We announced our expansion in uh, Germany, new research in uh, France, expansions continuing in Ireland. And what we're really now anxious to see is that the US and the EU CHIPS Act get completed that allows us to make those good economic investments. Because part of the challenge is, is that you know, we're competing now with countries that have very actively incented those investments in Asia. And these investments, they have to be competitive worldwide mm -hmm. or I can't compete for the worldwide market. So, and that's what we're looking for, the EU leaders as well as the US uh, congressional leaders, get these things done so we can go faster. That was Pat Gelsinger, uh, Intel CEO. He's also a former CEO of VMware, which potentially could be bought out by Broadcom. It's a potential M&A deal. Big money involved. Big names. We'll break it down. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. It is a potentially huge deal in the tech space. Good evening, everybody. You're listening to The Cable on Bloomberg DAB Digital Radio, and I'm talking Broadcom potentially buying VMware. Bloomberg broke the news last night uh, that they are in talks uh, for a merger. So let's get to the reporter who broke that story, Liana Baker, uh, joins us now from Bloomberg. Talk to us about how this came about, what you know about it, what stage it's in. So we had been trying to figure out for years what Broadcom was going to do. Their CEO, Hawk Tan, has been really public about how the company needs to grow inorganically. So even last summer, he was looking at $20 billion deals. So when this broke, we weren't that surprised that Broadcom was the acquirer here, uh, potentially for VMware, which would be definitely over $40 billion deal at least. Is this finally VMware's sort of final resting place. It seems to have been past the parcel a little bit. <laughs> I looked into the history of VMware's deal making and it dates back to 2003 when EMC first bought it and there it's really quite a tale of how many times it's changed hands, but one thing has remained constant is that Michael Dell has been the big beneficiary of all the different deal making and uh, here again he could be the big winner if this sells to Broadcom for even a modest premium. Okay, um, let's let's tie that in. So what is Michael Dell's role in this, for those who don't know? Sure. So he's the biggest shareholder in VMware, and that's due to a complicated deal that uh, went down last year when Dell uh, formally separated its controlling stake in VMware. Uh, Dell first bought EMC, which controlled VMware, back in uh, 2016. They issued a tracking stock at that point. Then that was taken private. So there, there's been almost uh, you know half a dozen ways that VMware has uh, done a transaction over the years, and this will be sort of the final chapter for Michael Dell and VMware. So, so big tech deals seem to be back, and I, and I look at what is happening with Twitter. Um, 
and maybe that deal doesn't get done. But but I thought big tech was going to find it tough to do deals. Why is this different? If you look at the share prices of Broadcom and VMware, they've fallen in tandem. So as long as the acquire and the target um, aren't trading in a different direction, you're going to see deals. We're also watching private equity really closely. They have their eye on almost every publicly traded software company under $10 billion. So we're going to see strategic M&A like this. We're going to see weird M&A like Elon Musk buying Twitter. And then the traditional, you know, take privates in tech. I like that. Weird M&A. It's going to be like a different category on the Bloomberg terminal if you type in M&A go. Um, so Broadcom. They tried to make uh, Qualcomm happen. They tried to make that acquisition back in 2018. U.S. regulators stomped that out. Do we have any idea of twofold? One, do the regulators going to get upset about the VMware thing? And two, are there other people, other people, other companies that Broadcom could be interested in here? One thing we're looking at is, are there other acquirers for VMware? So that's something to chase. But in terms of Broadcom, a lot's changed since 2016. At that point, the company had not been domiciled in the U.S. They've since come back to the U.S. They're based here. So that won't necessarily be something the White House could block on national security concerns and acquisition of VMware, but you never know. Speaking of weird M&A, the the 2018 White House blocking of the the Qualcomm deal was pretty weird. Um, so we'll see. There are other regulatory bodies that could look at this deal, though. Broadcom has been in trouble with regulators before, like the FTC and in Europe. So there could be concerns here, and it's going to need China approval since Broadcom is in China. What's the industrial logic of doing this? I, we're talking about chip companies buying software companies. I, we're, we're talking about vertical integration. We're talking about kind of a different way of approaching the business model. What, what's, the, what's the rationale behind this deal? So with Broadcom, they're really a conglomerate. So they're more about financial engineering and trying to uh, bring disparate assets together. So there actually isn't a lot of synergies with some of their traditional assets. But Broadcom has been trying to expand into new areas under its CEO, Hawk Tan. So it's it's almost like a private equity firm that's publicly traded, and we call it a chip company. So Broadcom isn't exactly your traditional chip player. That's a really... That's a really insightful way of looking at it. So they're more of a private equity player versus a straight-up company. Um, there, you have any rumblings of like any other suitors? Or actually, I guess the better question is premiums and valuations. Like, sure. So we don't have any of that reporting right now, but we do know that VMware shares are trading off with the tech sell-off. So we have to see what kind of premium they'll try to get. Do they want to be valued at a premium to where it's trading today mm-hmm. or where they were you know, a month or two ago? Um, in terms of premiums, your average premium on an M&A deal in this space is, is above 30%. So that's a number we're looking at, but we just don't know at this point. But we hope to break it um, as the deal gets closer to the finish line. All right, Liana, thanks a lot. We really appreciate it. I know you're busy. you got a lot of work to do on it. Go, go, go. Thank you so much. We appreciate your time, Liana Baker, uh, joining us in a potential uh, Qualcomm VMware deal. Um, So that could be potentially quite interesting, um, especially as I feel like divestitures was sort of the name of the game for a while, Guy. Um, But we do have stuff coming up tomorrow. we got Davos, but it's also PMI Day. You're you're weirdly excited about this. It's not weird. You like it, too. I just got to go first. Yeah, so so valuations are really uh, being watched very carefully here in Europe at the moment. And a lot of people look at their valuation models through the prism of the PMI data because it gives them a really good um, 
kind of up-to-date snapshot of what is happening with the European economy. So this should give us a, a good idea of what's going on right now. And it'll, it'll dovetail nicely with an interview uh, that Francine Lacroix is also doing in Davos tomorrow with Christine Lagarde, the president of the ECB. Now we've seen her blog today. It's going to be interesting to see if Francine can kind of tease apart some of that and talk a little bit about what's going on in the governing council. But yeah, it should be a really useful snapshot. Like a, 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 it's not real time, but it's about as close as you get to real time uh, for, for the Eurozone economy. And, and it'll give us an idea of kind of what needs to be done. What are the biggest challenges? Mm-hmm. Is it a growth challenge? Is it an inflation challenge? That This will this will tell us a lot. Yep. That and also I'm interested to see sort of on the equity market, what kind of follow through buying we are going to see. So we're it feels like we're a little bit off the highs at this yeah. point. Um, we obviously had a terrible seven week stretch of losses. We haven't seen that uh, since the early aughts. But um, do we sort of rebound more from here? And I think that in a broad sense, a lot of the reading I did over the weekend was like, are we just going to see these little rallies, but we're overall in a, cycl- in a cyclical bear market? Yeah. Or is this just like a short term kind of thing? The, the market feels I, it, it's been a while. It's been seven weeks since we had a decent rally. Um, I eight would be an all time record. Yeah. So I just history would tell us that at some point soon, we shouldn't be surprised if equity markets bounce. But to your point, Alex, is how sustainable is that bounce? And that's the question we're really, really trying to figure out right now. Hope you enjoyed the show. This was The Cable. This is Bloomberg.